everyone, this is Josh from Solopreneur Grind for episode 84 of the Solopreneur Grind podcast. I am lucky to be joined by Human Radfar, CEO and founder of Collective.com. Human, thanks very much for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Josh. Awesome. Human, can you please tell us just a, a little bit about yourself to get started and then I'm excited to, to dig into the backstory. Sure, sure. Uh, so I'm uh, a Persian, born in London and raised in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So you'll hear the accent there. Okay. And uh, in terms of my work profile, uh, entrepreneur turned uh, venture capitalist turned back to entrepreneur. So uh, I'm sure we'll dive into what exactly that means. I hope so, especially because in the last in the last year or two, I, I've found myself a little bit more involved in in that world that I had no idea about. So I'll definitely want to dig into that. But Human, can you talk about where? It, so in your case, where were you maybe in your early twenties or when you were finishing up your education? Uh, and and when you did, what was the first? What did the first bit of your professional career look like? So my career in some part was heavily shaped by the dot-com. So uh, I had gone to school all in Pennsylvania in the U.S. So I grew up, as I mentioned, in Pittsburgh. For undergrad, I was at the University of Pennsylvania. And during that time, it was uh, the peak of the dot-com. So when I graduated, actually, um, it was very difficult to find a job. Uh, it was not as en vogue as it is now to kind of be in tech. In fact, it was quite the opposite. And that drove in large part uh, my decision to go to graduate school. I, I really enjoyed engineering. Uh, I studied computer science and economics uh, at Penn, uh, but that's where I actually had gotten the bug for startups. Uh, but unfortunately I got the bug and then <laughs> the bottom fell out. And so I went to graduate school to further my education. I would say lick my wounds. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to Carnegie Mellon back on the other side of the state uh, in, in Pittsburgh. And uh, I spent two years doing my master's there. And uh, afterwards, my office mate at Carnegie Mellon and I decided to start uh, my first company. So from a professional vantage, I've actually never had a career, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Uh, I've always either started companies or you know been investing and and so I would say I'm fairly non-traditional. Right. So what, what was the conversation like, literal and kind of going on in your head when, when you were talking to your friend about starting that first company? I think both of us had a pretty deep passion uh, for the Internet and networking mm -hmm. at the time. So I was researching, uh, I would say, the social networking space and market. It was, uh, you know, we graduated from grad school in 2002. Um, so when we were in school, you know, the web had burst onto the scene, but it was, it was kind of contracting in terms of the commercial interest. So, but the academic interest continued to flourish and the internet, as you know, just kept chugging along in the background, didn't care uh, mm -hmm. that the stock market had changed. And we were really excited in, in, uh, in what the potential was for it. So his research area at the time was really about uh, web services and how could the web move from a publishing platform it was really a magazine like an interactive magazine to a platform for development there wasn't a lot of active development going on in the web service space um, it was really uh more i would sit down the stack my research was in the social networking space and so you know we'd always uh talk about ideas where the internet was going to go where technology was going to go and when push came to shove at the end of graduate school we put our heads together and said hey listen we didn't get to play in the first dance uh, and uh, we, we want to give it a crack. And so 
you know, when we graduated, we started our first company, but it was very different than the environment now. Um, in particular, because we were in Pittsburgh, um, you know, it was post.com, it was still pretty dark ages for the internet. So we were hacking about doing consulting. It was pretty, it was pretty old school, right? It, uh, now you can apply to YC and, and off you go. And there's, there's a number of accelerators, pretty amazing ecosystem, but you know, we spent a year or two just, uh, experimenting before we, we figured out the direction. Right. And so you, you alluded to consulting. So do you mean you were pretty much, you know, one half of the day, the two of you were working on this new idea, new company, trying to get it off the ground and maybe like the other half trying to do consulting work to actually pay the bills so you could stay afloat? Well, we tried to tie them together. So we, right. we tried to find projects that uh, were in line with uh, where we were going. And, uh, you know, to some degree, I think we had some success, but in hindsight, you know, the work that we did in consulting ended up priming us, you know, to work together, uh, keep the lights on, but was ultimately the direction that we went into uh, right. when we finally raised, uh, you know, venture capital and, and found a direction that we wanted to go uh, in 2006. Right. So would you recommend that to people now? I mean, you, you mentioned the YCs, the other incubators. What do you think the trade-off or the pros and cons of each would be? And, and so let's say you were to start, let's say you, you got pushed into today's day and age. Would you do the same thing? Would you would you take the incubator route or what would you recommend to others? I think it depends in part on your level of conviction, your risk profile. You know, it's, it's so hard to give advice. And I think people who give advice too readily are often uh, basically conveying, you know, what their experience was and, and the context changed. So mm -hmm. I think it depends really on where that entrepreneur is. If you have a concept that you're very passionate about, it, it's uh, something that maybe you've even tested. Um, I would say you have a higher chance of success by going 100% into it. Um, right. But look, the world is the world is the world, right? You know, do you have cash in the bank? Can you afford to take that kind of risk? Um, do you have that level of conviction? And so I think a lot of great companies get built by people experimenting on the side. Um, something takes off where they get some conviction and then, you know, jumping into it. It, it really is about, you know, your context. So uh, I think people need to find the path that works for them. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think that's great advice. Awesome. So Human, can you tell us what happens next? You, you, you alluded to you eventually raised some money. What ended up happening with that company? So uh, we raised our first seed round uh, from some folks that uh, were in the DC, Virginia area. You may know this, but AOL was based there. And at the time, AOL was still, you know, it was coming off the dot com. But these, that was that was the internet. That's how you mm -hmm. got on the internet. Uh, and, I still and remember so, those those dial up days. Yeah, I mean, I think people really don't uh, give credit to the innovation and to uh, the contributions of that company to the internet. I mean, think about it. It wasn't just uh, how you connected. Today, we connect through, you know, at least in the states, like a Comcast or a Verizon or AT and T. It was also how you browsed. It was how you mm -hmm. chatted. It was like everything. It was it was the browser. It was the social network. I mean, you had AIM, you had chat rooms. So a lot of the groundwork for what we use today was, you know, laid out by those tools. And at any rate, mm -hmm. um, you know, the the founders there were early investors. Um, it was absolutely transformational to my life and career to, to work with, you know, people like that who had seen the beginning and actually had a vision for the future. And then um, Phil Bronner, who was a VC there, 
And so we met them and we moved to Pittsburgh. I mean, it took us like a week or two. It was, you know, packed our bags, bounced, <laughs> ready mm-hmm. to go. And, uh, you know, the company was, uh, it was, it was a ride. It was a ride. So we, there was that web 2.0 wave that happened right then. Social networking was taking off. You had that battle royale to see who was going to win what was ultimately a very, very large prize, as, as you can see now through how large Facebook is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we were very lucky to be part of it. So the company ultimately became Add This, which uh, you know we grew. It was a marketing automation platform. We built, we started with free tools for website developers to help them make their site social. Eventually, went into other tools, you know, email capture, list building. But um, we went the freemium model, and uh, you know, it was it was a, it was a ride. But uh, you know, when at the time where we sold it to Oracle, I think we were on 15 million websites. Wow. We uh, reached about two billion unique users through those websites and processed about two trillion, or sorry, a trillion page views per day. And so, um, really fantastic experience. Uh, learned a lot about the early internet, about monetization on the internet, the models. It was just, it, it was awesome, but it was hard. It was hard because you know, in between 2006 and our exit, we had one of the largest recessions in the history of the country, and that was right. just, uh, I would say. It was a fantastic lesson in hindsight, but at the time, traumatizing. Yeah, I bet. Could you summarize? I, I could only imagine the the things you learned, the lessons that came out of that one experience. And we haven't even talked about what what comes next in terms of your career. But for those, especially who are at the beginning or even thinking about starting a tech company, what would you say are the two or three key lessons you learned from that, or even suggestions that you would give to? Uh, tech co-founders right now? It's a great question. I think, you know, there's a wealth of lessons, but I think the first is um, really be patient. Um, you, you, It doesn't happen overnight, and I know everyone says that, but, you know, everything starts with humble beginnings, and uh, it's unclear how large it can get, how small it can get, but, you know, be patient with yourself. Uh, and that's that leads to kind of the second piece of advice is you know have an attitude of continuous learning. It's something I do now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you know you really don't know what you don't know. Every startup is a fresh experience. And yes, I have some tools that I didn't have before. I have a network I didn't have before, capital that I have before, which of course puts me at an advantage from where that you know young twenty something was at that point. But it doesn't mean that you know how to run your business at this point in time. I mean, think of how much the the world has changed since then. Yes, we have some amazing things that make it easier to start a company, but you know we're in the middle of a pandemic. We have to work and hire remotely. Uh, mm-hmm. In the case of people on the west coast of California, we went through wildfires, which have impacted the air. You couldn't go outside. Um, there's been tremendous social unrest. Show me the playbook for that. Mm-hmm. Show me that the entrepreneur has been through that. And the answer is you haven't. So you yeah. have to have an attitude of continuous learning and, and you have to have that, that, that patience. And I would say the last piece is, um, just really make sure that um, you approach it as a journey and then it's as much about um, the downs as the ups and sometimes the things that you think are, are these really challenging tough moments are, are when the door gets burst open widely and you and you just you know I remember I'd had um, you know deal with a very large tech company and they were um, you know as you grow as a company you often multiple overtures from some of the larger companies to buy you. And I thought mm-hmm. this was the exit. I was mentally ready to go. And they had shifted to, to say, hey, look, the exit doesn't make sense, but we can do a great deal with you. And the deal was so lucrative. And at the time I remember being so upset. And uh, But that deal ultimately gave us so much money and it was non-dilutive financing and really improved our, our valuation. So 
you just have to take a I really believe that startups can be a fantastic tool for personal growth and development um, if you let them. And mm -hmm. so, but you, you know, it's, it's, you got, you have to be patient. Absolutely. Which is almost ironic to hear. I mean, I totally agree. And those are great lessons. It's almost ironic to hear be patient when you think high growth tech company and it's like, oh, investors want to see this and, and uh, the numbers have to be huge. And, and, and then you hear be patient. But I, I do think that's important for any type of business. So that's uh, those are awesome takeaways. So Human, what what happens next? You you do end up getting acquired. What was that experience like? And then what happens? Right, you're you're so young. You've had such a such an awesome experience and a great outcome. What does that feel like? And then how do you even approach kind of the next step of your career? Well, I was lucky. I had moved to California prior right just right before from the east coast i transitioned from um running the company day to day to a uh, chairman role and i uh, worked with the the ceo there and uh, he did a really great job he was the coo he we promoted him uh and uh, he, he he was the one that ultimately landed the plane at oracle and i was uh when i was on the west coast i was trying to figure out what i want to do next now interestingly enough you know, there's this like non-determinism in the universe that you just can't possibly predict. So uh, one of the friends I had made and the person that I had met through my first chapter was uh, the founder of a company called StumbleUpon, also Canadian, mm -hmm. Garrett Camp. And uh, Garrett and I had met when he was running that company because, you know, one of the fantastic parts of being um, a platform that connects to all the social networks and connects to all the advertising networks is you get to meet these uh, innovators who are facing the consumer. And Garrett was one of them. And Garrett had founded a company called Uber obviously, and he was not going to be full time. And uh, he decided he was going to work on this project Expa. And Expa was going to be a platform for entrepreneurs to build uh, their companies, but also for us as uh, the partnership to invest in their companies, help further them. And it wanted, he wanted it to be something unique. And so I had already kind of been hanging out with him and I decided this is a, this is a place I can, I can work for a bit. I, I think if you would have told me at the time I would have spent, you know, six years of my life there, I would have said you're crazy, but, uh, mm -hmm. Not because I didn't enjoy it, but you know, you don't. I you just didn't think that way. I thought to myself, well, this is uh, fun. We're having a good time. We're we're helping all these entrepreneurs. Um, but yeah, I ended up spending um, you know a long time there helping build it out. We did two funds, and uh, ultimately, prior to this company I'm working on now, Collective, which actually came out of Expo, um, and it was a company we started uh, and, and funded out of Expo. I uh, I ran investments there, so it was it was really a tremendous experience, but. I think you, you at each time you know you're presented with opportunities. There's entrepreneurs have being an entrepreneur is really about optimizing opportunities and taking mm -hmm. advantage of them. And at that time, I think that was an amazing opportunity to help build that up, be a, a founding partner alongside him. And, and uh, it was really great. It's been really great. Very cool. Well, how do you suggest that people? try to make those opportunities now, right? You, you mentioned COVID. We'll date this episode quickly. So it's early November 2020. We're in the midst of it. It seems like it's it's not going away yet. Uh, and I totally agree because most of the kind of like good or lucky things that happened for me just kind of happened by obviously some luck. But I, I do believe that you can make your own luck by getting out there, talking to the right people, meeting the right people, uh, networking. How do we do that in, in COVID world? Hopefully that doesn't last for too long, but how have you been doing it or how do you recommend that others do it? 
So, I mean, my point of view is there's I, I, there's this term called ikigai. I don't know if you know it in Japanese, uh, Japanese term. And what it is, is it's kind of like you look at what you're good at, what the world needs, uh, what you love, and, and there's this intersection. And I think people are always battling trying to find this um, state where you have this harmonious tension. And I think part of the way that you can really take advantage because that's in that state i think you really create like a huge amount of value imagine if you're doing exactly what you love you're really good at it, the market has a need for it mm -hmm. um it, it's just like this beautiful point in time you can't always do it so you're you're kind of but you can but you, what you can do is you can understand what you love you can learn more and more about what you love and sometimes learning that is learning what you don't like you experiment you can learn about what you're good at and your skills so i would say um you know, my old uh, one of my coaches in high school used to say, you know, luck is when operation uh, preparation meets opportunity. So mm -hmm. you can constantly prepare and get your skills. You can learn a lot about yourself. You survey the market and then there can be a turn. And when that turn happens, you got to take advantage of it. But the only thing you can really do is is uh, work on the variables you can control mm -hmm. and that such that when things happen outside of your control, you are in an optimal position to leap on them. It's, it's a great breakdown. I love it. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, what was it like? This is more personal than anything. What was it like operating a fund? Like I've done my fair share of reading, you know, I've read Brad Feld and all the, you know, the books that are recommended and, and learning about kind of how VC funds operate and stuff like that. But I'd love to hear a little bit more of what was it like? I mean, any behind the scenes stuff or any, you know, misconceptions that might exist? Uh, would, would love to hear more about that six year period. Sure. So at Expo in particular, you know, we're builders helping builders. So Garrett started Uber. Actually, I have another Canadian partner, Maloon Tesovic, who founded MetroLyrics. Hmm. And um, we were all we'd all met while building or at least uh, tangentially through that. And, and we wanted to help those uh, there's other people who are like-minded entrepreneurs and we had ideas too that we want to build in partnership with them. Mm -hmm. And when you, it, it's, it's, it was just like in some ways very similar to a startup because we had to find our product market fit. We had mm -hmm. to find that, that intersection of what we were good at, what we love to do as well. And so there was a lot of experimentation, a lot of trial and error, but what's interesting about, uh, a venture platform versus a company. At a company, you have an organization structure where there's a CEO and everyone reports to them. And that CEO is subject to the, they work at the uh, discretion of the board of directors. In a venture partnership, it's not the same way. You have a bunch of people who are trying to work together in partnership. And of course, there are in certain areas, okay, one person might be more accountable than another, or you know, maybe one person has like a final call on the way capital works and whatnot. But ultimately, trying to move forward and collaborate is a very different in that structure than it is uh, in others. And I think getting mm -hmm. to know that from inside was, was really transformational for me because I, it helped me understand the other side of the table a little bit. And then also working with entrepreneurs when you have to give them a check and they're making mistakes and understanding what it's like to have not one, but many of those folks talking to you in different stages of life cycle and what it, what your psychology is at that time and how, I mean, we came from a position, in my opinion, deeply, I believe this, that we really wanted them to succeed. We had a human connection with them. We'd often make decisions, I think, um, to our deficit, frankly, as a fund to, to help the entrepreneur, because we believe in the long run, that was the right thing to do and that would work out. And so far it has, mm -hmm. but um, getting on the other side of the table, I think entrepreneurs sometimes believe 
well, sorry, I shouldn't say they sometimes believe, but there's this misconception that, okay, venture people are investors, they're, there's a certain way they behave. And, and at the end of the day, they're just people trying to be happy. When they invest in you, they want you to be successful. They believe that. They've deeply convicted that for their reputation online um, for sometimes 10 years. And so uh, just understanding that psychology has helped me now that I'm back and operating so that I can have more respect, have a greater sense of collaboration, understand what to communicate with them. Uh, it was really awesome. Awesome. And okay. And so can you talk a little bit about then how the idea for Collective came to be? Was it, was it something that came up within Expa? Was it you just getting the itch to get back into being a co-founder yourself? Uh, would love to hear more about how that kind of evolved or, or even just came to be from the beginning. Yeah, it was it was really interesting. So I, I would say from my point of view, I in my career, I've always helped and been passionate about helping businesses succeed. So at Add This, we helped our 15 million businesses succeed by driving more traffic and engagement through our platform. Then at Expo, I was helping venture-backed businesses succeed through capital, through advisory. Um, we had our 60-some companies that we helped. And throughout that, I learned one thing, doing your finances suck. Accounting, mm -hmm. taxes, you know, even compliance, they're all necessary, but they're not sufficient. And it's one thing when you're in a venture back company, but when you're a very small business, these can be very painful and sometimes deadly. And so I started to think about this concept of like, how do you commoditize this? How do you make this a platform so that people can go to one place and just point and click their business um, you know, into existence, so to speak? So I started thinking about starting that and I did miss operating quite a bit. And so that was something that I was starting to incubate. Now, a couple of years ago, I'd also, I met, uh, you know, my, one of my co-founders, uh, or Kainer, he's a Turkish immigrant. I'm an immigrant, but much, much earlier, uh, to the States. And he came from Turkey and he'd been freelancing. So think solopreneurs, business of one. And he said, you know, that, that problem is so much more acute when you're one person, because think about it. You're never going to have, that's never going to go by design. If you're a solopreneur, mm -hmm. you're never going to grow. The point is to have a, a really an amazing business that gives you a lifestyle you want to afford. But part of it is you don't want to manage those people. You don't want to deal with that stuff. So when we came together, and I, I remember he came in, he was pitching us. He, we didn't know each other that well. And I said, this is either going to be the best meeting of your life or the worst meeting of your life, because I want to build this too. And we ended up spending a lot of time together. We met our third co-founder, uh, Bora, and uh, we, we, uh, we kind of decided to work on this together. And that was the genesis of it. And the idea, you know, ultimately uh, manifested. The vision for the company is, is pretty simply for collective. How do you focus on your passion, not your paperwork? Okay. Right. Can we give you a, a platform, the tools and technology and the people online, no going anywhere so that your business is on autopilot, right? Because if you're ultimately like a software developer or you're a designer or you're a marketing consultant or you're a realtor even, that's, you just focus, you should focus on your core. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we wanted to do. And so we designed the first, what we call online back office. So again, mm -hmm. accounting, tax formation, um, and we'll add more services. So for just designed for those solopreneurs, just designed for those businesses of one. That's awesome. Yeah, I've I've now had to do bookkeeping for two small businesses, and I hate. I have it in my calendar. You know, first you know monthly bookkeeping, and it's it sucks. Now I, I use QuickBooks, and it makes it a little bit easier. But uh, it's I think it's a good problem that you guys are trying to solve. Can can you talk a little bit about? The co-founder aspect, you, you said, you know, he, he kind of pitched you, you knew him a little bit, and then obviously you guys had similar ideas. How do people approach 
finding a co-founder and then if you do happen across somebody who maybe has a similar idea or you think might be a good fit what's a good way to make sure that they are right like did you guys spend weeks talking did you work together as like a trial run for a few months or how, how do you recommend people approach uh, just even the the idea or the, or the potential of co-founders so I think when you're looking at a co-founder relationship, you got to approach it in some part like a marriage uh, because you you are ultimately giving birth to a company mm-hmm. and you have to steward that company together through thick and thin. And sometimes you have, uh, and actually statistically, you probably won't work on it together for the life of the company. One person may leave, both of you may leave. If it's very successful, that's actually what ends up happening quite a bit. And so you have to have a person that you can communicate with in a way that's very open, it's very direct, it's very collaborative. And yeah, I think you have to see how they are in situations of success, but also in situations of conflict. And, and ultimately to do that, I think you have to get to know them pretty well. So we spent weeks together and our initial relationship was, was uh, you know, I would say very different than where we are today, where we're like working together day to day full time. We started working together more part time. Um, getting to know one another, and uh, yeah, I, th- I think people should put time time to it. Um, too often, I think people do the resume uh, marriage, where oh, you went to, you were at this company, I'm at this company. We both want to start something together and get it going. Do it. Doesn't mean it's not going to work, but you wouldn't get married that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and and remember, you ha- you have to view this as that deep of a relationship. I mean, in some ways, it's it can be more traumatic if 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 there's separation because there's a lot of capital involved in and frankly could potentially have uh, a lot of psychological ego involved if there's a separation so i would say that's that's my advice is just make sure you feel good about it if you if you don't feel good at the beginning chances are you won't feel great at the end right yeah that's really good advice and so what has it been like the second time through is it any I'm, I'm sure it is a little bit easier I mean you mentioned you, you have the experience probably easier to get funded some of the difficulties you know maybe you've been through something similar before or, or very close to before but what or, or maybe another way to put this is how much of an advantage is it having been through this experience once before I would say you know for the most part I think it's net positive for me I think there's a stability, uh, a sense of mental calm that you get because you've seen some of those patterns, not mm-hmm. only as an operator, but when you've invested in so many companies, you realize that other founders and companies go through this is quote unquote normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that stability is great. The access to capital, the access to a network, um, the experience, uh, obviously, of knowing how to do certain things is great. But as I mentioned before, you know, the circumstances here are unprecedented. Uh, in, in the current state of the world. And so I, I would say the thing that probably gave me the most preparation, and I use that word very cautiously, was running the business through the recession, uh, my last business through the recession, because you know it was a quick, unexpected turn for the, the worst. The environment was much harder. We had to think very differently, very quickly. Um, you have your entire company under strain from something, a circumstance out of control. And so how do you work with people when ultimately you cannot promise or commit to them anything about the external environment and yet you need to make plans because you have investors because they need to get paid you know it's not like because the environment is challenging all of a sudden say well i'm okay not getting paid or i'm okay not knowing what to do day to day so Mm -hmm. that 
training was was really useful for me personally um but uh you know humbly it's it's been a real challenge but you know with collective i think what we've seen it's been really great is uh you know the the solopreneur world is rising right mm -hmm. a lot of companies are uh, large companies are starting to hire more contractors versus uh, part or versus full time because they're not sure about the environment. And so a lot of our businesses, we call them members that are on our platform are, are thriving. And also there's a huge growth and demand there. And ultimately, one thing that has been super satisfying for us, Josh, is um, in the US, if you form your business as an S Corp, you can save a tremendous amount of money, but it's very hard. You have to run your back office in a certain way. And mm -hmm. so that is why we work you know so hard to do that because we can save you know sixteen thousand dollars a month if you're making or sixteen thousand dollars a year for some of our, our members so giving that money back now feels great for sure and and you've got to think that there is a there is a shift even pre-covid right before covid a shift of a lot of people just say hey you know what i can work from my laptop i don't want to go into offices i want the flexibility corporations want lower overhead etc cetera, etc cetera. so i would say like covid has even just put that kind of movement on steroids, which is, uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Awesome. So Human, I, I can't let you go without asking specifically about fundraising, right? That's a topic that, I mean, tech, you know, a little bit more popular these days, becoming a tech founder. You, you talked about the incubators uh, and, and what I, especially in certain subreddits and, you know, all the, all the different websites and forums, fundraising is an interesting topic to say the least. Do you have any tips or, or recommendations on people who maybe they're thinking about starting a company to begin with, what you recommend to kind of even just think about or how to approach fundraising and or if somebody has a company, they have some traction, any tips or advice on, on approaching fundraising in general? It's kind of broad, a lot. but yeah, that, a lot. if you I can boil it down to I, maybe two or three points. Yeah. If you're a first time founder, uh, I think what I would say is get to know people, right? Use your common sense. Mm -hmm. Being a, an investor, and I use the analogy of marriage for founders, it's not that dissimilar. So being an investor is a funny thing because you have to uh, move quickly. You have to be fast and slow in some ways that are really challenging. So you have to move fast because often really competitive uh, deals move quickly. Right. But you end up having to wait 10 years for those deals to work out. Right. And so it's it's uncomfortable. But what you can do to mitigate some of the strain for the investor and for yourself, frankly, because you want to make sure you're working with someone that you, you can you can, you know, see a long term relationship with both the partner and the firm, you know, start to reach out, curate and get to know your network earlier so that when you go out for your fundraise, you are going to some people that know you, they've been tracking you, they've seen your work, they've seen your character, they see that there's some chemistry there between you. So that, that would say that mm -hmm. that's the one thing that helps a bit. Um, and then the second is, remember you're selling to the investor a business, not a product. I have seen uh, a number mm -hmm. of entrepreneurs come in and they'll give me these huge decks about the product and they'll demo it and do all these things. Ultimately, the investor needs to invest in the business, so they need to see the whole picture. What's the problem you're solving? What's the solution? That's a lot of product, but then also what's the market size? What's your go-to-market? What's your traction to date? How much do you want from me? They want to understand, is this investment ultimately going to be able to raise money in the next round? And so what I encourage people to do is, again, sell the company, not the product, but 
when you ultimately you need to show that investor that if they give you capital a b c and d you are going to be able to get to that next round with the plan that you're you're presenting to them right mm -hmm. whether it's you know hey i'm going to get to a certain revenue run rate or whether i'm going to hire a certain team or i'm going to release a certain product and they can then take a, a educated guess and say okay if they can do those three to five things right do i think like the next big investors can invest you know andres and sequoia and whatnot and right. do i think that this person is the person do said three to five things so right. you just have to get into the psychology of what that person's buying it's not dissimilar to selling to your customers as an entrepreneur but you have to treat them as a customer get to know them do your discovery make sure that they're warm and i think sometimes people think of uh investors as almost like too too similar to the way they think of like large scale investors. Oh, they're just giving you money and it's a deal and then they disappear. It's a very, very intense relationship, in particular when you're at the early stage, seed A, even B. Right. Yeah, that that's great stuff. I mean, we we did a small fundraise over the summer and, and I was surprised. Yes, there's so much that goes into it, but at the end of the day, to me it felt like it really came down to networking and sales. Uh, if you could kind of like boil it all down, you know, can you get your deck and yourself in front of enough people? And can you can you sell the right story of, about your business, obviously, in an, in an accurate and, and convincing way? Uh, very cool. So what's happened since you, you started the company? Obviously, COVID happens and we've alluded to it a little bit. How have you guys as a team handled COVID? And, and maybe if we can extrapolate out from there you know, what, what recommendations can you give to others, especially in the tech space on how we can navigate tough times, right? Cause they come, right? Whether it's a recession in 08 or COVID in 2020 or the dot-com bust in, in the early 2000s, they come, right? Sometimes earlier than others, but uh, what, what do you recommend to either prepare for or how to handle them once they do hit? I think, you know, one of the core values that we have a collective is we call it people first. And it was a value that I had in my first company, actually. It was our first value from my first company. And organically, actually, my co-founders and I um, came to that as a first value. And I think if you approach every situation with a lens of humanity and mm -hmm. dignity and openness and integrity, you can navigate it. So let's apply that. What I mean is, so COVID hits and you don't know what to do of course you don't know what to do well, who was alive when there was a worldwide global pandemic but you didn't know it was going to be a pandemic all you knew at that time when we were still in the office was that something bad was happening it could get worse mm -hmm. and i think part of what helped us get through it was we did the best research we could we came up with a plan that would maximize the safety and the security of our employees we erred on that side right so we actually were one of the early people to shut down our office and have our employees go remote. And it's mm -hmm. challenging to go remote when you're growing rapidly. We went from four employees to 14, which, you know, it's it's a lot in a, in a couple of months and then tell them to go remote. And then the new employees, we had to onboard them remotely when we weren't ready. And the way that we could do that, I think, and why it ended up working out was because ultimately we would tell people, hey, look, I don't know what's gonna happen, but I'm trying to do the right thing for you. Here's what I think, do you guys have feedback? You know, can we work on this plan together? And you work with them and you show them the full deck. You know, you don't try to hide things. You don't try to act like you're under control. You're not in control in those situations. So when mm -hmm. you have a lot of variables and, it, and they start shifting out of your control, the way that you can create solidarity on the team is through being vulnerable and ultimately 
making them part of that process. And we did the same thing with some of the social unrest that occurred in the United States around you know, Black Lives Matter and, and all of the, the unfortunate incidents that occur. The same thing in the wildfires. You just mm-hmm. talk to people, you try to inject some humanity, and you make plans together. Because um, these types of events can, as, as painful as they are, they can uh, force people within your tribe to get closer. And ultimately, you can leverage that as a way for all of you to get through that together. And so right. that's, that's kind of the framework I would recommend is, is just be humble, be open, be transparent with them, be vulnerable about what you can't control and what you can, and that you need their help to get through it. For sure. That's great. And I like that you use the word framework because you can't write a guide on how to how to navigate 2020, right? Uh, it's, I mean, what what's happened this single year is just crazy. But anyways, that's unprecedented. For, yeah, that, that's for, uh, we could have a whole episode on, on that alone. Uh, awesome, Human. Well, this has been really great learning, learning about your story and, and some of your key lessons. You mentioned earlier on that you're, you know, lifelong learner. And I always like to ask guests about what type of resources they rely on or what type of books they prefer you know are, are you a reader online courses uh seminars what are some of the key resources that you use to continuously learn and maybe if you have like two or three specifically that you would recommend as well so i think for me i i look at um there's a couple of resources one you know i'm a huge reader actually so i read i try to read a book a week uh and I would say one is just there's a lot of people of amazing experience before you try to find, mm-hmm. uh, you know, books, uh, for example, on uh, not I always start with the fundamentals, right? So you have to work on yourself. And if you're if you're feeling good, then you can work on, you know, business advice and then, you know, go from there. And there's some things the, the more you get closer to, you know, practicing within your business, I would say you have to go to more recent online resources. But I'd say from a personal point of view, I read a lot of stoicism. So Marcus Aurelius Meditations, um, Epictetus, the manual. So those are great guides on how to work on your own mental frameworks, the way you view life and how you, your philosophy, because that ultimately will lead. It's, it's almost like the core OS for how I deal with problems and how I deal with anything. And then on top of that, you know, there's professional things that are going to make you productive, whether it's like, you know, getting things done or seven habits or highly effective people or checklist manifesto. Those are ways that you become productive. That's kind of the base. When you mm-hmm. go higher up, I'd say there's great business books, um, you know, on how to, I would say frameworks to use, like managing OKRs, measure what matters by John Doerr is a good one. But ultimately I think my combo is I read quite a bit cause then I can understand it. And then I will talk to, I try to find the best people who have done, who've been in similar situations and, and I'll ask them, I'll say, okay, hey, how are you running your company right now? Do you use OKRs? How, what, do you put in spreadsheets, use tools? You know, be just try to identify what the most important things are to you. And people are out there. And oftentimes the beauty of the internet, obviously, is they document it, right? Yeah. So maybe they'll say, oh, hey, I wrote a post on some things you can do on our business business OS. Or, but if they don't, get on the phone with them. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's, that's great advice. Uh, awesome, Human. Well, it's, it's been great to have you on the show. I appreciate you sharing uh, more of your backstory and, and all these great tips and, and takeaways. If people want to learn a little bit more about Collective or, or you, where are some places that you recommend that they check you out? Yeah, so uh, our website is collective.com. And uh, just to recap, we're ver- we're building the first back office designed for these business of one. A lot of people who are listening to this um, we basically want to do the paperwork so you can focus on your core passion and whatever your business is. 
And uh, we're based in the U.S. We're working with U.S.-based companies for now. Hopefully, we'll be able to expand to Canada, other countries as well soon. Uh, but right now, that's where we're based. And if you're there and you you want some help with that back office, um, you know, go to collective.com. Easy enough to remember. You you can find us on the internet as well. Um, and I will say one thing: regardless of whether you work with us or uh, you know, you, you come up with your own DIY solution. You know, we. With Collective, you get QuickBooks and it comes with the package. You get Gusto that comes with the package. Personal business taxes come with it that we do oh. for you. Uh, and we'll do all your compliance and we'll form your entity. But the one thing I would say is if you're, for example, making in the States 80K, 100K or more, go get an S-Corp. Get an S-Corp. We're saving so much money, Josh. It's insane for these people. It's thousands of dollars. So, you know, if you want to work with us, it's a good case because you have a team online that you know, ultimately can do that for you and, and give you the software tools and set up that back office. So, you know, we, we, we're kind of, we kind of call it peace of mind that pays, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to do all that dirty work, but you actually make more money than what we charge. But you, if you, if you are interested in that, if you're a DIY person, you want to set up all of the, I'm going to get my own business bank set up. I'm going to get my own EIN. I'm going to do formats. You know, there's a lot to do, but if you want to mm -hmm. do that, I really recommend it because, you know, there's three or 4 million people in the U S who are making, you know, a hundred K or more, there are, you know, I'd say 15 to $20 billion on the table waiting for you every year to just take that. So I would right. encourage people to research that. And then uh, if you have any questions, you know, we're, we're uh, collective on LinkedIn and, and let us know what we'll tell you. We're more passionate about those entrepreneurs being successful and getting their money back than them even working with us. Yeah. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head because I mean, I've been fortunate that I, I took tax law in school. And, and so as my business was growing, I kind of knew what to look for and, and what numbers, you know, at what point to incorporate. Obviously, it's a little bit different in Canada, but, you know, at, at what points to do what things. But even for me and for most people, it's it's very confusing, right? And then to have to go out and pay, even if it's just for a consultation for a tax accountant or a tax lawyer and, and this and that and the other, and, and it adds up. So uh, Oh, the, yeah, the, it adds the, up. I mean, think about it this way, like, QuickBooks and Gusto alone, if you want to do your payroll, um, you know, for your business and QuickBooks, I mean, you're talking probably on the max of $100. You want to go incorporate your company in the U.S., especially in S-Corp, that's $800 that first year. So in that first year alone, I mean, when you're looking at it, it's about two grand. Our total mm -hmm. service costs 2400 and we give you all that. Plus, you have mm -hmm. a finance team in the cloud. We're doing your accounting. I mean, it's, right. it's just a no-brainer. That said, again, I'm more passionate about them doing it, running it well, because um, there's just so much money left to table. And in this time with COVID and with, you know, you're just struggling, like imagine having an extra couple grand in your pocket. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. so for us, it's really, it's a mission and a, and a movement. And I encourage everyone to do that. And if you have questions, you know, I'm at Human Radfar on Twitter. You can come, come to me. We're, we'll push you to the right resources. We have plenty of articles on escorts and the benefits you should learn about it. Awesome. And so I'll include links to that in the description. There also is a discount that Collective is offering, I believe. So if you use our code, uh, I think it's Solopreneur Grind 50, you'll get two months at fit. Your first two months will be at 50% off. So we will mention all of that in the description, whether you're listening to this on as a podcast or watching it on YouTube. Human, thanks very much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Love what you guys are doing. And, and thanks for sharing all the information. Thanks for having me, Josh. I really appreciate it. It was fun. And if we can ever be of help to uh, this community, let us know. We, we love it. We love being part of it. 
Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the episode. I hope you got a ton of value out of it. If you want to join the Solopreneur Grind community, we recently started a Slack group for other like-minded solopreneurs who are starting or thinking about starting or are already well on their way to working on their own businesses. Doesn't matter the size. Make sure to check us out at solopreneurgrind.com slash join if you want to join this group. We're constantly sharing ideas, bouncing ideas off of one another, helping each other out in all areas of business and life and all that sort of stuff. Make sure to check it out, solopreneurgrind.com slash join, solopreneurgrind.com slash join. Take care and thanks very much for listening.